Hope everyone's doing well. Just one more update before we jump into Ephesians. We've been praying for the Grindstaffs, Matt, Katie, Atticus, um, and as we've been praying uh, for healing and asking the Lord to, to work in Atticus's heart, if you don't know the story, uh, Atticus uh, um, was diagnosed with having congenital heart defect uh, in the womb, uh, was born, needed heart surgery um, to uh, try and fix some things. He had the heart surgery. It seems to be successful so far. Uh, we're really kind of in this wait to make to see, make sure it's successful. Um, and uh, they were supposed to be in the hospital for, for a long time. They actually got to come home this week, last week um, early, which is really good news. Um, and so we're, we're excited and praising the Lord for that. Um, but it's still a long road ahead of him. There's lots of in-home nursing, in-home therapy, lots of traveling to Charlotte and Asheville um, to see specialists. And so we still want to continue to pray for them, um, for God uh, to continue to, to heal and, and keep Atticus healed if his heart continues to work and um, to provide for them as they do all these traveling arrangements and stuff. And so uh, keep them in their prayers, but also praise the Lord for what he's done thus far um, because it is an amazing thing that they'd be able to come home so much earlier than they thought they'd have be able to. Again, continue just to be patient about how you might be able to help. We don't want people showing up unannounced like you might and probably never do it for any newborn, but uh, Atticus in particular um, there's lots of rules about who can hold him and be around him because he has a weakened immune system due to um, the heart issues. Uh, so just be really, you know, don't, don't try and just go over there. But text, um, you know, Facebook message, whatever. Katie uh, told me recently she has read all of those, and they are so, even if she doesn't respond, they are so encouraging for her. Um, so you continue to encourage and love them in that way. Uh, but, um, and as more needs may come up, we will continue to get those out to you guys so you guys can be God's grace in their life. Um, we started Ephesians last week, and uh, we'll be in there for 13 weeks. So this is week two of 13. And um, last week, we really just kind of went through the first two verses and talked about who wrote it, uh, Paul, uh, w- the church that was receiving this, the church in Ephesus, um, and kind of why he wrote it and what the main point of this letter, because it's a letter that Paul wrote to a church, was, and, and really kind of landed on this, uh, he, you know, idea that the point of this letter is to uh, remind them of God's grace, that they might take it with them and be changed by it. And so we, we, we talked about how gospel truths should be received, and they should change us into gospel people. Um, and so gospel truths will produce gospel people when rightly believed and trusted upon. When our whole life hinges on these truths, it changes who we are. Um, and so Paul begins the letter saying grace to you and ends the letter saying grace with you. Take this grace with you as you go. Let it change you. Let it make you a different person. And so uh, we went through that. And then now we're going to get into kind of the beginning meat of this letter, uh, verses 3 through 14, as Cassandra so wonderfully read for us. As you look at this, um, it, in the Greek, it's one long, complex, run-on sentence. So if you're not good with grammar and writing, Paul apparently wasn't that great either. Um, and so he just wrote this r- long, run-on sentence. Um, it's, it's most likely, though, that Paul was dictating this letter to someone who was writing it. And so Paul's just talking, and he's excited, and he just doesn't stop to take a breath. And so he ends up with this huge, long sentence um, in, our, in our English Bibles, they've made it into multiple sentences to try and help us make sense of it. Um, but it is just one long sentence. And in this letter, 
over 30 times Paul mentions in Christ. We talked about that last week, that we are in Christ. We are in him. We are in the beloved. Nine of those 30 times uh, are found in these verses alone. So they just, it's just coming out, and Paul's just saying, in Christ, in Christ. It's like he can't take a breath without mentioning Jesus and us being in Christ and in Jesus and in the beloved. And so he's excited about this. He's spewing all of this out, kind of word vomiting all of this out. Um, and, so ver- and it's really broken into three sections. Verse 3 is a summary of all that Paul's about to say. Verses, um, then he goes into uh, what the Father has done for us. Then he goes into what the Son has done for us and what the Spirit has done for us. So we talk about the f- God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, so there's a couple things I want to say right off the bat before we dive into this. Uh, today, there are a couple theological topics that we're going to touch on uh, that could be controversial. Uh, they really shouldn't be for the Grove. We've talked about it, one of these at length many times. The new, another one may be new for some of us, um, but these are uh, theological topics that Paul touches on, not just in these verses, but in the letter as a whole. And so we're going to talk about them, um, and, and we're going to touch on them about as much as Paul does here, and then we'll go into more depth later on. Uh, as we talk about these co- seemingly controversial topics, there's a couple things I want to say at first. Um, whenever we meet controversial topics in the Bible, uh, we really need to let the Bible be our guide. We need to submit ourselves to Scripture and say, if this is, if this is what the Bible's saying, then it must be true. And, it, and, it's, and, and, and if it's true, then it must be good. Okay, so we want to submit ourselves to the idea that if the Bible's saying this, then it must be true. And if the Bible's saying this and it's true, then it must be good, because God is good. Uh, it may not seem good, it may not seem fair, it may not seem right, but it must be if it's true. And so we want to submit ourselves to that. Um, and we want to submit ourselves to Scripture, not to what Zach says about Scripture, but Scripture itself. And the other thing I want to say about these things is it's okay to believe in something you don't understand fully. Okay? It's okay to believe in something you don't fully understand. We do this every day. Um, I know I'm supposed to be like a man, but I'm not afraid to admit, I don't really know how my car works completely. Okay? I know, like, parts of it. I get it. My dad rebuilt engines, and he'd make me help him. So I get a lot of it, but I don't get the whole thing. But I still use it every day. Right? Like, I use my car every day. I don't need to know how it works to use it. I do it. Same with computers. Like, we all do this. And we submit to these things, hey, it just works in order to, be, to use it, to benefit from it. I don't need to know everything about it. This gonna be some, some of the things about today's truths are going to be like that, where you don't need to know every single detail to benefit from this. You don't need to know every single intricacy to, to, for this to be a good truth for you. And then, and then, and then, and then also, um, it's okay not to fully understand your beliefs and know them uh, fully, because if you could know God fully, it wouldn't be a God worth worshiping. If you knew everything about him and you knew how every single thing worked and there was zero mystery, it wouldn't be a God worth worshiping. And so mystery in our faith is okay. There's times where we're going to say, the Bible says this, it must be true. I don't understand it. I don't get it. It doesn't seem right or fair to me, but God said it. It must be true. So I believe it. Don't get it, but I believe it. So we're going to touch on a couple of those things today, and I want us to be okay I don't want us to be divided over, th- over these things. Um, the church, and by the church, I mean our beliefs as a church, uh, corporately, we have certain beliefs on these things. To be a member of the church, you don't have to believe these open-handed theological issues the same way that we're going to teach them today. But 
to be a member of the church, what we ask is that you don't cause division over these things. So you don't have to sign your name next to I believe in predestination the way Zach taught it on, you know, February 2nd, whatever, 2020. But what you're saying is I'm not going to go around saying Zach's an idiot for teaching it this way. Uh, and that seems fair. I'm not going to say you're an idiot for not believing the way I teach it. Like, we're just not going to do that. We're not going to cause division. In fact, what we'll see today, one of the topics we're going to touch on is the idea that, that the Bible, the gospel, brings less division, not more. It brings less division. Um, really, it should bring no division, uh, not more. And so, so he, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through these. We're going to talk about the summary, then what the Father's done, what the Son has done, what the Spirit has done. Um, and then we'll close with one, with one of these things, um, and it's going to be good. And, and one of the things that I think is neat here that Paul breaks this out, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, is really, without just spelling it out for us, he's touching on this idea of the Trinity that we believe as Christians. This is actually not one of the controversial topics. So, you know, we're not there yet. We'll get there in a second. Uh, but the Trinity is this idea that Christians believe in one God. Uh, we believe that one, this one God has eternally existed, which means there's, he's always existed. There's never been a time where he hasn't existed. And we believe that he exists in three persons, three separate, distinct persons, yet one God. This isn't controversial for us Christians, or at least it shouldn't be. This is a basic doctrine of Christianity, yet it still is one of those things where you don't have to understand to believe it. Um, I don't think any of the analogies are good. People talk about how an egg has three parts. You have the shell and the yolk and the white, but it's still one egg. I don't think any of these things are good. Um, it's not a good analogy. It doesn't, it doesn't really hold water. Um, and water is another one people use. You've got steam, ice, and, and liquid, and it's three in one. Um, it's not the same. And, but, but, so I don't understand it, but I don't need to understand it to believe it. It's clear that we believe in one God, and that God the Father is not God the Son, and God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not God the Father, yet there's one God. You guys confused yet? Okay, good, because that'll make it easier for the rest of the stuff if you're confused already. Um, so Paul breaks this down for us, that each one of these persons has a distinct role in our personal salvation, and all of it is incredible news. And so let's get started. In verse 3, he starts this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So he starts off by saying, blessed be to God. Um, blessed be God. Praising God. Some translations may say praise God. Um, it, it's really best to be read blessed, blessed be God. Um, the reason why some translations make it praise is because it's hard for us to think about us blessing God, and so instead of trying to dive into that, they just change the word to praise. But it really is best translated, blessed be to God, that we should bless God um, because he has blessed us. Yet the way we bless God is different than the way he blesses us. We, we bless God because he's deserving to be blessed, and God has blessed us, and we're undeserving. So it is different, but so Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, there's one of the in Christ, with every spiritual blessing. Um, Paul tells us that we have every spiritual blessing. Not some of them, not a lot of them, not most of them. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every single one. This is a summary of what he's about to say. He's going to go into what some of those spiritual blessings are, but all of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. For those who are in Christ, there's no, you have everything you need to follow God. In you right now, you have everything you need. 
everything that has been done for you to follow Jesus, to love him, to be a Christian, to be in Christ, you have everything you need. You have every spiritual blessing. And Paul puts the word spiritual in here because he knows in 2020, we'll think blessing means more stuff, right? Like that's what we're going to, he knows, and maybe it's been like that for a long time, but he knows that uh, on Instagram, we're going to put hashtag blessed when we get a new truck, right? Like he knew that was going to happen, so he's like, okay, let me define blessing here. It's spiritual blessing, not material blessing, because this is what we do, right? Our culture does this. I don't know if it's not new, but our culture does this where like we are blessed when we get new stuff, right? You get a new house, you take a picture of it, hashtag blessed. You get a new car, you take a picture of it. If it's a truck, you, go, you get down low to make it look taller because taller trucks are better. I don't know if you know that. Don't look at my truck. It's about as small as you can get. Um, and you look, you look up at it, take a picture, hashtag blessed, right? That's what we think. We, we equate blessing with more stuff. If you have a big truck, I'm not making fun of you. I'm just maybe a little, but it's fine. You can have a big truck. Um, but it's not, that's not what is God's blessing for you. God's blessing for you in Christ is not cars, money, promotions, jobs, even family. It's spiritual. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Then he starts off talking about what the Father has done. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. So the first spiritual blessing is that he chose us. He chose us. Um, In uh, theological terms, this is called the doctrine of election, that God has elected us, that we are his. He has chosen us. Uh, my dad was going through a Bible study recently in, in, the, in 1 Peter, um, and it ca- talks about election and God's elect in the in election of his people. Um, and my dad called me just trying to figure it out. He's like, hey, um, how does, like, elections in heaven work? Like, did everyone vote? Does just, like, the Trinity vote? That kind of thing. He wasn't sure what election meant, and it was a totally valid question because in our culture, we use the term election in regards to democracy. Um, but really, the idea of election means just a choice, that you've chosen someone. And so in our democracy, we choose through voting, but the voting isn't actually the election. The election is the choice we made through the voting. God has elected his people. He has chosen them, not through voting. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, and the Father didn't get together and cast three ballots and vote on everyone on this earth, but he's chosen his people. He has made them his. This is where things start to get controversial. But it's true. We can just all admit, and we should, if we believe the Bible's true, that God has chosen people to be his. We can get into the hows and whys, and we can start to divide over that. But it's absolutely true that God has chosen people. And this isn't new to the church or to, to even the time of Jesus in the church. All the way to the beginning, God chose Abr- Abram, right? All the way back to the beginning of, of his uh, plan where he, he, he chooses a person to, to birth a nation. Now that nation will come Jesus, the Savior of the world, right? He has this plan, and he chose Abram. Before that, he chose Noah to start over with, right? So, like, God choosing people is not new to, to, to the New Testament. It's something that's always been happening. And, and, and the basis of that choice is not on the people who are chosen. In fact, in Deuteronomy... Uh, God will reveal part of the reason why he chose Israel to be his people was because they were the crummiest, smallest, weakest little nation there was ever going to be on the face of the earth, and that would be the best way for him to get the most glory. 
is if the way that his, his son would come is through that small, weak little nation. And so even if it was the, on the basis of those chosen, it wouldn't be anything positive. It'd be because God chooses the weak. He chooses the lowly. He chooses, like, because he's like, if I'm going to get some glory out of this, I don't want to choose people who could ever say, look at me, look what I've done. I'm going to choose people who could not claim, have a claim to their salvation, could have a claim to their choice, to their election. I'm going to do it all. And so God chose Abram. God chose Israel. And then God in Christ has chosen us. All who are in Christ has been chosen before the foundations of the earth. Before you did anything good or anything bad, if you were in Christ, you have been chosen. You have been predestined to be adopted as sons. Predestined, that you're on this destined path that you would become adopted by God. So here's why it gets controversial. Two, two, there's tons of reasons, but here's a couple. Uh, the big ones. I think the first big one would be, okay, so if God chooses people, um, but then he doesn't choose other people, that seems unfair, right? That's not fair, as if, uh, well, it really, the, the Bible has an answer for that. Uh, in Romans chapter 9, Paul is explaining this idea of being chosen and election, and he's going into much more depth than he goes in here. So you can go read Romans 9. It's fantastic. Um, but he, he explains this, and he, and he uses this analogy, that we are like pots, and God is a potter, and he's making things out of clay. He's making us, that we are his pottery, and he's the potter. And Paul poses this hypothetical question as if someone else is asking it. Paul's not actually asking this question. He's saying, one might say, well, that's not fair. How could God be upset with people and hold them responsible for their sin if, if the only reason they haven't changed is because he hasn't chosen them? That's not fair. And Paul answers the question. He says, who are you to question God? He says, does the, does the clay call out to the potter, make me this, make me this, do this to me? No. And so this is one of those places where we just submit and say, God has said he has chosen people. And if you are in Christ, then you are chosen. You have been elected. You may not understand how that works, but the Bible's clear for us not to even try and question how it works because we're not God. And it may seem unfair, but it only seems unfair because of our culture and what our beliefs not because of, of, of a just God saying that this is unjust or unfair. We're saying that to a just good God. And we shouldn't say that. God has chosen some people. I don't know why he hasn't chosen everyone. Somehow, this is God's uh, way to get the most glory out of everything he chooses to do. So, it's one controversial thing. Um, and there's, there's tons. I, I, think, I think one thing that this uh, implication people try to, to make charges against um, is that, uh, well, if, if God chooses some people, he doesn't choose everyone, then why would we even evangelize? Why would, we, why would we go out and spread the gospel if God's already chosen some people and they're going to be his no matter what? There's two things we'd say to that, right? So the first thing would be that um, God has decided the way in which he'd let his chosen people know they're chosen is by other chosen people going around telling everyone that they could come to Christ to spread the gospel. That's the way in which people be brought into the family is through the, sh is through the preaching and heralding of the gospel. And the second thing that I think should encourage us is if there's, if there's people out there who have been chosen by God, elected, predestined for adoption, then that means when we go out and share the gospel, people will respond. 
because some people are chosen to respond or destined to respond. So, so what could uh, be a really scary exercise going out and event sharing the gospel and be like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to do good or not, you know, I don't know if I'm going to say the right things. It doesn't matter. You go out, you share the gospel, and some will respond. It's not up to you, and it's not up to them. God has chosen people. This should embolden us. This should give us courage in evangelism, not shrink us back and not want to do it, but it should send us out and share the good news with everyone because we have no idea who's a part of the family of God. So we share this good news with everyone. We call everyone to respond, and the chosen will, the elect will, those who have been predestined for adoption will. Now, the Bible is absolutely clear. There is still responsibility on man. In fact, later, Paul says they should believe. People believe. They, they, they believe in him. How do these fit together? How does man's responsibility and God's sovereign choice come together? I don't know. I don't know how it works. But this is what the Bible says happens. And so we submit. We trust. We believe in it. God is absolutely sovereign. In fact, later, in two weeks, we're going to get to a section where even... Paul says, because you know, all, all of us think, okay, God does all this choosing, but then we, we, get, we have faith, and we put our faith in Christ. Paul will say in chapter 2, even that faith was given to you by God. Like, even that part, even the part that you think you mustered up, and you're like, oh, I've mustered up enough faith, and I put that in Christ, and even that's not yours. Even that's God's. It was a gift of grace so that no one should boast. I don't want, it's a spoiler, I don't want to get too far into that part, because we're going to be there in two weeks, but all of it is God's, and yet we're still responsible. I don't know how it works. And we don't have to for this to be good news. Why is this good news? Why is Zach spending so much time talking about this? If you were chosen, if you, weren't, if you chose to be God's, like if you just decided, I'm going to be a Christian, then you could just decide to stop being a Christian. If it was, something, if it was based on something you did, then you could lose it because you change. You do silly things. But if God's election of you is based on his choice before the foundations of the earth, before you decided to do any good or any bad in your life, if, if his choice was based upon that, nothing but his good pleasure and the praise of his glorious grace, then you can't lose this thing. It wasn't yours to, 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 to choose and to grasp at. It was given to you, and he has told us he won't take it away from those he's given it to. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So this is good news. This should be a warm blanket to our soul. Because some of us feel like we're not good enough, or we're not worthy, and we don't have to be good enough. We don't have to be worthy. The whole point of the cross is that you aren't, and you never will be. So God, through Christ, has made a way for you to come to him. And not only that... He's adopted you. This idea of adoption is incredible. It's probably one of the greatest things that happens to the Christian. They become adopted into the family of God. Because forgiveness is incredible. Forgiveness would be enough, right? To know that you're guilty and deserving of death, yet God has forgiven you. That the judge of all the earth has declared you not guilty, even though you're guilty. That would be enough. That would be good news. And we use this analogy for that, right? We, we, we talk about how it's like if you were in a courtroom and you were standing for the judge and the judge is about to sentence you and the judge says, you're, even though you've, you, I've, uh, it's been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are guilty and deserving of punishment, yet I'm going to declare you not guilty, even though you're guilty, right? And, we, we, or, or the, and, 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 they, and the judge pays the price for your sins, for your, for your crime, right? That's the analogy Christians use. Adoption 
is so far-fetched that if we continue that analogy, it just gets crazy. Because if we continue this analogy to what actually happens in the heavenlies, what actually happens spiritually to us, is the judge of all the earth pays the price for our crime, declares us not guilty, even though we're guilty, then he then puts his gavel down, gets behind the bench, comes to you, puts his arm around you, and says, you're going to be my son now. You don't have a family, you don't have a home, I'm bringing you into mine. Like, that's we, like we just can't even fathom that, because a judge would never do that. A judge should never declare us not guilty, even though we're guilty, but he certainly wouldn't just bring us into his home and make us his, even though we're an orphan with no family, he brings us into his family. And that's what adoption is, that the God of all the earth, the judge of all the earth, has taken us into his family and made us sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And real quick, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, sons is not something that should restrict this uh, to just men. This is written to the church in Ephesus, so to the church, both men and women. So the idea of that, that he's saying sons of Jesus Christ is not just to the men, but in this culture, only sons had an inheritance. Only sons inherited things from God or from their father. And so what he's doing is he's not saying only the men in this church are, are sons and adopted, but he's actually taking the women of the church in Ephesus and he's lifting them up saying you will be sons, even though you're women, even though you're daughters. You, in our culture, you will receive an inheritance, even though our culture says you would never. In God's family, you have the same standing positionally as a son. So this is good news for both the man and the woman, both the son and the daughter. But it doesn't stop there. That would be amazing. But he continues on. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That was long. That's what the, that's what the son has done. He has redeemed us. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or our sins. Uh, this idea of being redeemed or redemption is this idea of being bought back from slavery, that we've been purchased with, it, it costs something. There was a price to be paid, and we've been purchased out of slavery into freedom. The, the best example we have of this is in the Old Testament that's really neat, is that you have the nation of Israel who has been uh, enslaved by Egypt. God, hearing the cries of his people, sends a third party, Moses, to free his people from slavery. And through various plagues and through the death of the firstborn ch uh, sons of Egypt, in addition to lambs for the houses of, of Israel, that price that was paid frees the Israelites from their slavery and brings them out of slavery into the promised inheritance that God had given them if they'd follow him. We have this picture. And like that, we have been bought out of the slave. We've been enslaved to sin. Before Christ, we could do nothing but sin. Sin was what we wanted. It was our greatest desire. Even the good that we did was so that we could be recognized for good, which is also sinful. So we could do nothing but sin. 
And God has purchased us through the blood of Christ out of that bondage, out of that slavery, and into freedom. We are alive in Christ today because of another's blood. Brian Loritz, a pastor in uh, California, shares this story about uh, a, a terror attack um, in which a, uh, these terrorists go into a convenience store um, and, and begin shooting everyone in the convenience store. And, and there was a woman in that convenience store who wanted to, who's tried to escape, and as she's running out of the convenience store, a man standing next to him gets shot and dies and falls on top, knocks the woman over and falls on top of her. And his, this is, this is gross, but his blood begins to cover her as he dies on top of her. And as the terrorists begin to leave the, the convenience store, they go and check everyone who's laying on the ground to make sure they're dead. And when they get to her, she's so covered in the blood of the man on top of her that they assume that she's dead, and they don't do anything further, and they walk out of the convenience store. That woman in that store was saved because she was covered in the blood of another. And that is the same thing we have in Christ, that we are saved from our sins, bought out of the slavery of those sins, into freedom, into life with Christ, out of the kingdom of darkness, or out of the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of light, because of, we're covered in the blood of another. It's why we drink wine or grape juice at communion, to remind us that there was a price that was paid, a blood that was spilt, that now we have redemption in that blood and forgiveness of our trespasses. But also, we're no longer the same person that we were. We're new. We're no longer slaves. We are free. We're no longer slaves. We are sons and daughters. There's a great theologian um, from our early church named Augustine one of our great African um, theologians of the church uh, from North Africa. (coughs) He was the bishop of Hippo uh, in the church. And uh, before coming to Christ, uh, he had a uh, a sexual issue with sexual sin. And he was just, he said he had many, many intimate partners, many lovers, um, and he had all this sin. And he goes to market one day after coming to Christ, and one of his intimate partners comes up to him um, and, and calls out to him. And sees him and calls out. And the way she said it back then was, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine didn't turn and look. And she's, Augustine, it is I. Still nothing. Third time, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine turns to her and says, I know. But it is no longer I. And that moment, Augustine was telling her, I know who you are. And I know who you're calling for. That man doesn't exist anymore. I am new. I, my, that old man was crucified with Christ. And I've been made new in the likeness of Christ. I'm no longer that person. And when we've been bought by Christ's blood, we too no longer are the same person we were. All the sins, all the shame that we've felt, that is gone. That has been crucified, been given with Christ, crucified with Christ. We are no longer that person. We are now in Christ. We are a new creation. And so we have been bought with a price to the praise of his glory. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit is this seal, this, um, this seal on us, the promise, the guarantee of our inheritance. Um, you know, we, there's a, I understand that there's some big sports game going on tonight, right? And, um, and, and, and whoever wins that game is going to get a ring. 
And they actually, I, I was looking it up because I was just curious. Uh, they actually get 150 rings from the NFL. Um, they can cost as much as $7,000 each. So it's a lot of money, right? And, but the owners can buy more rings to give to people if they want to give out more than 150. Because there's like 52 men on the roster, then they have the front office, and they have other staff and coaches, and they have um, you know, trainers, and they have maybe some guys on the injured reserve list. They have all these people they could give rings to. And if they get past 150, the owner can buy more and give out more rings. And if you get that ring, and you, and you, and you probably wouldn't wear it, because it's a $7,000 ring, and it doesn't really go with anything. It's kind of big. Um, but if you did, you would have all that comes with being a Super Bowl champion. All the fame, all the recognition, because you have this seal on your finger, and you get all that comes with that. And in the same sense, we have the Holy Spirit as this seal that we, we have all that comes with that seal. All the inheritance that comes with that. Um, maybe a better analogy would be like a, a down payment on a house. When you put a down payment on that house, that house, it, it becomes yours. Um, but, but then, you, you know, later you, you, t- you get the entire house. That money is this, this proof that you are interested in this house. You want this house. The house is transferred over to you. And then later it truly becomes yours you make that last payment. And so there's this seal that we have, this, this sign that we are gods in the Holy Spirit, and that later we will inherit that promise, that it's this guarantee that we will get all that is for God's people, God's children. Um, and, and so I have to believe with as many people who are here right now that there's some of us who may be hearing the truths of adoption, maybe hearing the truths of redemption, hearing the truths that we've been made new, still wonder, is this for me? Like, I don't know, like, like, Zach, you don't know what I did yesterday or last week. You just don't know everything about me. Like, I, this, this can't be for me. I think there's some people, uh, specifically where we live in the Bible Belt, where we, um, we always look back and wonder, it seems, was I really sincere when I did that whole Jesus prayer thing? Like, when I said, when I rose my hand, when they did that altar call, and I rose my hand, and, 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 I, and they said to come to the front, and I said, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, and I walked down the aisle, I get to the front, I shake the hand of the pastor, and he prays. Like, was I, like, did I really mean those things? Or, like, is I, am I really saved? How do I know I'm really saved? I mean, the Holy Spirit is a promise, it's a seal of the promise that's been given to you that you are his. The Holy Spirit is this helper that comes. In Ezekiel chapter 36, it says that I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my ways. It's this promise of the spirit <coughs> that's gonna come and cause you to follow Christ. So, so, so you know you have the Holy Spirit if you have this desire to follow Christ, that you want to follow Christ. If you are following Christ, then you have this seal that you are his and you will follow him the rest of your days. And so, so he, here's the question um, I think too often, this is straight from a book by J.D. Greer called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, which is a really good book. It sounds like it's not a good book. You feel like maybe I should keep asking Jesus. It says, he says, stop asking Jesus in your heart. Just stop it. Here's why. We need to stop looking back and wondering, was I really sincere enough? Did I really mean it when I asked Jesus into my heart, if that's even a thing? It's, no, it's found nowhere in the Bible, by the way. But you know, when, I really, when I asked my heart, was I sincere enough? Um, and, and the question, that should not be our question. Our question should be, are you currently following Jesus? Like, are you, do you have a desire? I know you're not doing it perfectly. I know you're failing and you're falling. But is there a desire in you to truly follow Jesus? And, 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 and here's a quick test. Like, when, when the Bible contradicts what you want to do, do you want to do what the Bible says? Or are you just like, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to leave that part out. I'm not going to do that. Like, I know that's crazy. 
Or do you truly submit to the word of God, submit to Christ, and you want to follow? You fail, you mess up, you make the wrong choices, you sin still, but you want to follow him. We need to stop looking back and saying, did I ever decide to follow him? Because you can look today, and if today you're following him, then you know at some point you decided to follow him, right? It's that responsibility. It says in here that you believe in him, you have the inheritance. So if you at some point believed, uh, then that means you'll still currently be believing. So do you currently believe? Is your life still currently hinging on the gospel? Um, J.D. talked about like a chair. Like all of you right now in front of me are sitting in a chair. It would be silly for you to wonder and contemplate if you ever sat down in that chair, right? Like, because at some point, you had to have sat down in that chair, or else you wouldn't be sitting in that chair. So if at some point you sat in that chair, you're currently sitting, and if you're currently sitting, that means at some point you sat down. So stop trying to pick the day you sat down and just rest in the fact that you're sitting. Stop trying to look back like when, like, you know, on, can I just be honest with you guys? You know, some people like write in their Bible like the date they got saved. I have no idea the day I got saved. It was sometime in high school. There was a day I wasn't following him, and then someday I woke up and I was like, I'm following Jesus all of a sudden. I don't even know when that started. I don't know. I didn't want to back then, and now I do. So I don't know when it, it wasn't like this grand moment, like where the heavens opened up and an angel came down and was like, you're saved. We're all happy and rejoicing up here. Um, it, was, that didn't, it wasn't a thing. My, it was just, I was, in some of us have, maybe not the angel part, but some of us have like a date where you, you know, and that's great. I'm not saying you shouldn't know, but you don't have to. If you have the seal today, at some point you were sealed. We don't need to figure out when that was. Just rejoice that you're his today, that you want to follow him today, that you're following him today. This is the promise, and, and, and if we have that, then we have the seal. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. One last controversial thing, and then we'll, we'll close. Um, this, is, this is the one that's probably going to get me in trouble, because this may be new to some people. The predestination thing, you guys pretty much know where I stand on that. All you have to do is look at some of our books over there. Um, it, th- this is in the text today, and it's going to come up in a couple weeks even heavier. And I want us to get us started thinking this way, because I don't want it to be a surprise for us, okay? Uh, I'm going to share an article later today on Facebook, and I'll, I'll can, I can text it out too if you don't have Facebook, to try and help... Um, uh, us understand this further. But if, if we go back and read, there's an overlap between the redemption part and the uh, seal part that I think is really important for us. Um, starting in verse 12, it says this, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So Paul is, is Jewish, and Paul um, is writing to a church that's not in Israel, it's a church that's full of Roman people and Greek people. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not in Israel. So he's not writing to Jews. He's writing to the Gentiles, okay? But he's a Jewish guy writing to the Gentiles. So, so in this we, the first to hope in Christ, he's talking about him and his fellow Jewish brothers who have believed in Christ. We, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. So he's talking about we, him and his Jewish brothers, Verse 13, in him you, Gentiles, also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, both yours and, and we, our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We who were the first to hope in Christ, and then you believed in the gospel, and you were saved, and now we get our inheritance. 
there is this belief, and it's, it's really new, talking 1800s new, that there is this big distinction, even in the New Testament, between the church and between Israel. That is a new belief. It is not Orthodox Christianity. Um, it is not something our church fathers believed or, or, or wrote about at the very least ever. This is a new belief. It's called dispensationalism. You can look it up. Um, it's, it's not what I believe. I think you're fine to believe that. You can be a Christian to believe dispensationalism. I just find it really not compelling in scriptures. Uh, we would believe in something called covenant theology. If you want to look it up, covenant theology. Um, what we believe is that God has made covenants with people. And, and he has this new covenant prophesied in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, which includes all believing people. All believing people. And that is the true Israel. The true church is the true Israel. Um, and so, you, so the, in Ephesians, Paul chapter 2, starting in verse 11, he's going to break this down and say there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's one new man in Christ. In Galatians, he's going to say there's neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek, or, or, um, or free or slave. Um, he's going to say there's, there's no distinction in Christ. He's even going to go so far as to say all who believe are children of Abraham. All who believe. Not, not, and, and that's not a new belief either. Okay, Abraham was this chosen uh, man that, that God said through his seed all of Israel would be, or, no, I'm sorry, all the world, all the nations would be blessed through his seed. All of it. It was never supposed to be just one family going to be blessed. All of the families of the earth will be blessed. Um, and, and Paul will say in, in Galatians that the true seed of Israel is Jesus. And we've been adopted in as sons, brothers, sisters of Jesus, sons of God the Father. And we get to share in that inheritance. Some would call this replacement theology. That the church has replaced Israel. I think it's a horrible, purposefully negative term. Uh, we would call it something more like, and this is from Sam Storms, a uh, theologian and pastor, we would call it inclusion theology, where the church, or all who believe, uh, both Jewish believers in Christ and Gentile believers in Christ, are included in the true Israel, or the church, which is the name for it now. It's not replaced by, it's more, th this, is, this is the way, uh, Sam, analogy that Sam used, and I love it. It's more like a caterpillar. You have a caterpillar, it's really a caterpillar, and then it goes into a cocoon, and it comes out a butterfly. The caterpillar was not replaced. It's just in a truer form of what it was always meant to be. The church does not replace any believing Jews. So replacement theology is not a good term. What happened is God has included all people into his family. He's extended the invitation to all tribes, all nations, all tongues to come into his family and to be part of his family called the church. All who would believe. Um, and, and I know this might be new for some of us, but honestly, the other belief that there's this distinction, and, and, and that, that's actually new uh, to the church. It's only a couple hundred years old. You can go look it up. I, I encourage you to. We'll dig a little deeper into it in a couple of weeks. Um, but this is incredible news for us because... Especially in this time, there was this distinction between, even within the church, um, erroneously, there's this distinction between Jew and Gentile that Paul was combating. Jews were seen as like this varsity Christian, like 
big time, like you're God's chosen chosen, and the rest of us are like little stepchildren who like kind of get a piece, get scratched on the table. So Paul's fighting to say, no, 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 that's not how this works. We are one in Christ. We share in the inheritance. And it was never meant to be just some small piece of land in the Middle East. God's kingdom is going to come for the entire world. Not just one piece of land. And here's, here's the reason why this is important for us today. You've got to hear me say this. You have more in common with the Jesus-believing Palestinian than you do with the non-believing person of Israel. In a, in a, in a love for Israel that would forsake your brother in Palestine is sinful. And it is, it is missing the point of the church. And we've got to understand that we are the church ethnicity. Where you come from, I'm not good at talking. Where you come from does not matter. God chose Israel to bless the entire world. And we're seeing that today. People from every tongue, every tribe, every nation worshiping God as one. And we get to see that. And then one day we will share in that inheritance when Christ comes and sets up his kingdom over the entire earth and we get to rule and reign as sons and daughters of Christ with him forever. This is incredible news. This should, this should cause us to worship that we get a part, get to be a part of something so bigger we, that we, we have this destiny that we've been predestined to be a part of this huge, grand plan to, to, to consummate all things and to make all things right, to make all things the way they were always supposed to be. Um, we, we get to be a part of that. No matter where you're from, no matter where you were born, you are welcomed into the family of God to be a part of this one people, this new humanity. And there's no longer distinction between Israel and the church. That true Israel and the true church are one and the same. And the church is a fulfilled, complete Israel. And we see this. This isn't new. One last thing I'm going to say, and then we'll close. This isn't new. <coughs> you see Abraham um, circumcised. We're not going to what that is. It's an external sign that you're part of the family of God. Um, circumcised people who weren't a part of his family in Genesis. He brought non descendants of his into the family and then later in Esther there's other there's other parts of this but these are the two easiest ones to go look up Esther um, has this there's this whole plan in the book of Esther for um, Haman to kill all the Jews in Persia and he has this plan and, and then the king through some 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 coercion uh, uh, some gentle uh, reminder I don't know that they, they, the, some Jewish people tell the king hey you know what we, you, shouldn't kill, you shouldn't kill all the Jews. If you kill all the Jews, you're going to kill your queen. Don't do that. Um, in, but, the, but the king can't change his mind. He's already put the decree out that on this day, it's going to be okay to kill Jews. So what he does, puts another decree out and says, Jews can defend themselves on that day. So the Jews defend themselves. They, they win. They overpower Haman's people, the people who wanted to kill the Jews. And it says, in, on, many, on that day, many believed and became Jews. How do you become a descendant of Abraham all of a sudden? You can't just like hop into a line of people that you're not a part of. You can't change your mom or your dad. So, it, so it somehow in the Old Testament, there was always this way to include those who are outside on the inside. And now we see that in full. We saw it in the past through Rahab, through Ruth, through the people in Persia who believe. 
And now we see it extended to every nation and every tribe. And it's incredible news. And so, so, so he, here's why this is so cool. And I'm going to close this and tell you why Paul's saying all this. Because this whole idea of being predestined means that you being here right now is a part of some big, grand plan to glorify God. Like, you are a part of this plan God has so that his name would be sung among the nations. And God puts you on this path from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the earth, on this path to be here today, right now, that his name may be heralded among every other name. And you're a part of this huge thing. Like, guys, everyone wants to be part of something bigger than themselves. That's why protests get out of hand and get crazy, because everyone's, like, excited to be a part of something bigger. They want to, like, be, they want to be for something. This is what we get to be for. This is, this is, the, this is, we are invited into the greatest story, the greatest destiny that's ever been told, and we get to be a part of that, and so we join in that. Paul says three times in this, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. All of these truths, our adoption, our being chosen, our being redeemed, our, our being sealed and our inheritance being a guarantee for us, no matter where we're from, all of those things should er- make us erupt in worship and praise this God who's done all this for us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so this is Paul's purpose. He word vomits all this out at the very beginning of his letter so that we might rightly see all that God has done for us and praise his name, and praise his name. And so we, that's what we do this every Sunday. We praise his name. And so we're going to transition to a time <coughs> where we sing and praise him. We're going to sing, we're going to eat and drink to remind us of the, of our, of the cost of our redemption and, to be, and thank Christ for that. Um, if you're a member of the Grove, you can give. It's up here on the bar. Um, if you're a guest with us today, this isn't me asking you to give. Um, we're so glad you're here. We pray that this would be a gift to you, this gathering. But we want to praise God together. So as we go into this, let's sing, let's praise, let's rejoice in all that God has done for us in Christ and that we get to be in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this letter. God, I pray that um, as we dig deeper and deeper into these truths, that you would illuminate them for us, that we might know you and what you've done for us more deeply. Um, And God, I pray that would cause us to praise you, that would cause us to worship, and cause us to be people who are changed, living for your glory. I love you, God, and I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.